look at this. It's like we found lost treasure. We're like Robin Hood. You want to keep it? Sometimes good people do evil things. Part of that is my money. Like there's two sides now. You're my brother. Bill Paxton. You gotta make us look like it was an accident. Billy Bob Thornton. What do I get? Bridget Fonda. He's gonna shoot you hard. From the New York Times best-selling novel. Do your A simple plan. I wish somebody else had found that money. Sometimes good people do evil things. That's the tagline for the film that we're discussing today. There's another tagline as well that uh, um, appeared on one of the other posters, which ties in with your suggestion, A.D., for how we should begin this today, which is, uh, I'll come on to in a second, but there's a, another tagline. They've worked hard all their lives, but they still can't afford the American dream. Stealing it is even better. And, A.D., you, you sort of suggested opening today as well, and I agreed with you, but I wanted to put the taglines in too. Um, with the quote that, that uh, the character Hank speaks in the film, you work you work for the American dream, you don't steal it. Um, all of that should point to what the film that we're talking about today, which is Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan, released in 1998. Sorry. Um, so Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan, 1998. So should we have a round of introductions, Pete? Do you want to go first this time? Uh, yeah, if you like. Uh, Peter True, uh, writer and lecturer. Lecturer. <laughs> Um, I'm Adrian Mills, uh, yeah, lecturer on the uh, games design programs at the Grimsby Institute. Program leader, I suppose. Fantastic. I run them. <laughs> Paul Lewis, writer, photographer, lecturer, Miss Crayons. Ne'er do well. Raconteur. Raconteur. Explorer of the outer realms of the human experience. <laughs> um, I might have tweeted that out later. Uh, it sounds a bit too much like something from Hellraiser, doesn't it? Um, is that how do you describe it? <laughs> Frank in Hellraiser? Um, uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it is. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> Don't really compare to Frank in Hellraiser. That's not good. Um, There's so a discussion terms... to be had about which Cenobite would you be, but uh, we don't do that now. Um, so would anybody like to offer a synopsis of a simple... I've got quite a long one. This, this plot's quite... Uh, it's not convoluted, I don't think, particularly. It's, it's quite a, a straightforward plot, but... Uh, there's a lot you have to fit in, I think, to explain the themes of the film. But uh, Pete, do you do you have a synopsis for the film? Oh, I don't know. Um, it it it's it's snowy. There's crows about, and they've they've three 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 miscreants, or not so much, uh, at the start find uh, a load of money in a crash plane, and it all goes wrong. Yeah, I think there's two miscreants and one. That... <laughs> It appears to be a miscreant, but actually is. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come to that later. Hey, did you have a, a synopsis that? Uh... Um, I think it's similar to Pete's. It's um, <clears throat> uh, you know, three, three uh, sort of. I call them friends. I mean, two of them are brothers, sort of thing. Mm. Uh, three men in sort of northern America, snowbound America, find um, an unidentified huge pile of money, a four point is it four point five million dollars or something, or whatever it is. Um, uh, in in a crash in a crash plane, um, and make a simple plan to wait and see if anyone claims it. Um, and obviously, um, <clears throat> the tendency, as ever in these films, that the the need for um, to have the 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 need for the to have the money there and then uh, grows ever more, causing ructions in the party and leads to bad things happening as ever in this type of film um yeah there you go there we go I, I mine's a bit longer so 
But uh, we opened on New Year's Eve. The Hank, of course, played by Bill Paxton, lives a, a simple life, um, apparently simple life, with his pregnant wife, Sarah, played by Bridget Fonda, in a comfortable, apparently reasonably well-paid, domenial job. Um, and it's an era of foreclosures and unemployment, isn't it? Um, there's differences between Hank and his, his less fortunate brother, Jacob, played by Billy Bob Thornton. Hank went to university whilst Jacob stayed at home. Hank has a family. Jacob has nothing, not even a job. The family farm was foreclosed. The parents passed away. And Hank and Jacob, together with Jacob's buddy Lou, played by Brent Briscoe, it's, I think it's probably the best performance in the film in some ways, actually. Um, but to, to travel out to uh, Hank and Jacob's parents' grave, and on the way back, uh, there's an accident which involves a, a fox running in front of the vehicle, and, and Lou and Jacob decide to hunt down the fox in retribution for the damage done to Jacob's truck. And the trio come across a downed aeroplane with a dead pilot inside and a gym bag filled with four, it's $4.4 million in cash. The debate over whether or not to keep the money. Hank wants to turn it over to the police. The others persuade him to hang on to it. And they come up with a plan to hold on to it for till the spring. And if there's no search, they'll split it up and go their separate ways. Back home, after advising the others to keep quiet, Hank blurts out the story of the money to Sarah, his wife. She tells Hank that he must return to the plane to cover his tracks. So Hank uh, concedes to Sarah's plan, takes Jacob with him. They encounter a farmer, Dwight Stevenson, who Hank murders cold-bloodedly, disposing of the body in such a way as to make it look like an accident. After that, the money is soon revealed to be the missing ransom for a rich man's daughter who's been kidnapped by gangsters. And the simple plan unravels at every opportunity, and Hank is stirred onto increasing paranoia and ever greater depths of inhumanity by his wife's whisperings. But that was quite good. <laughs> Um, well done, Paul. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of groundwork you know, to sort of discuss the, some of the themes of the film, which we'll come on to in, in a second or two. But I think next we, we might need to sort of outline our first experiences with the film. That would be a good a good step to take, I think. AD, what was your first experience with a simple um, film? Well, I'd only seen this once before, and that's, uh, I think, when it um, hit uh, DVD. I didn't see it at the cinema. Um, I've always been, and I will talk about Raimi sort of thing, so I'll, I'll, I'll hold off sort of talking about him here. Um, I'd always been, a, a, up to this point, a, a big fan of uh, Sam Raimi. Um, and so, but this kind of came a little bit out of, of left field and was a change of pace for him. Um, and I, I saw it, um, yeah, what would it, would it be, be early, early 2000s? It might have been on video or DVD, I, I can't remember which. It was in that period of changeover. Uh, when videos were getting switched over. Last era of VHS releases, wasn't it? I think, I think so, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it must be. I mean, it's the late 90s. DVD sort of took off in the early 2000s, didn't it, sort of thing. But I'm, I'm not sure if I, it was if, whether it was a, a, a little bit of time before I actually got around to, to seeing this. Um, and so I seem to remember, I, I, I remember enjoying it and, and coming back to it now was, was quite fresh because I, I could remember very, very little of it, if I was honest. Um, I, I knew the basic structure and I knew the basic sort of plot. And obviously, you know, and I, I know, knowing the genre, you, you kind of know what's going to happen sort of thing. So um, it, it, I don't know. I think it was because um, at the time sort of thing, I was much more into Raimi's uh, earlier stuff is is more bravura stuff, should we say? Um, and, and this was kind of a, a, seemed a little bit different. Um, when I when I you know when I, I did come around to seeing it, sort of thing, I did thoroughly enjoy it. But um, it was it, it, it wasn't something that I was like, oh yeah, well, you know, I enjoyed it, but it w wasn't something that really sort of stuck in my mind. I think I enjoyed it more more now, um, being a little bit older and, and a little bit more mm. seeing some some of the, the the depth to the sort of relationships in yeah. it more maybe you know i think at the time it maybe wasn't what i was looking for in, in a raby film 
Mm. Um, you know, you come to it with certain expectations. I think on the back of something like, you know, Abbey Down as quick in the dead as it could, as it does. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that, that was my first experiences with it. Um, um, and I, I do, I did enjoy it, but it wasn't, I don't think it was what I was looking for at the time. I enjoyed it more this time. Yeah, I, th- I think I can relate to a lot of that. I'll come on to that in a few minutes. Pete, what, what was your first experiences with the film? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it wasn't something I'd sought out or anything. It was uh, one of those things that, I, again, I originally saw it on the iPlayer, so it was only a few years ago. Um, didn't really know anything around it, um, who directed it or anything like that. It was just one of those things where I uh, needed something to watch and, and I came across that. I think Billy Bob Thornton sort of um, attracted me to it because I, I, I think I'd been recently watching some of his films. Um, and um, yeah, so as, as soon as I started watching it, it made me think of things like Fargo and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I think it was just one of those that one of those things. Um, didn't know anything about it at all, but I knew there was some um, top-notch actors in it. Um, started started to watch it. It looked like something interesting, um, and and that was it because I was completely sort of ignorant to it. And it's probably um, a, well, it would have been a very very different experience from you two because, like like I said, I had no expectations at all. You know, I. I made no connection with the director or anything like that because it, it was just a film that was that was on that was on iPlayer. Great yeah yeah I mean <clears throat> I, I was a Vegas fan like you AD in the 90s uh, video era child video recordings um, actor era child and mm-hmm. uh, very familiar with the Evil Dead Evil Dead 2 Army of Darkness I said a friend of a friend who worked on Army of Darkness in the special effects uh, capacity um, and, uh, and and I followed Amy's career through The Quick and the Dead, which maybe we'll mention a bit later. <clears throat> which I, at the time I found a little bit of a disappointment, and I saw I, I seem to remember seeing a simple plan at the cinema when it came out in the UK. Um, um, I don't remember an awful lot about it other than at the time I think I, I, I sort of said, "Well, this isn't a Sam Raimi film," <laughs> mm-hmm. like you said. Yeah, exactly. Ava, my expectations were a bit different. And um, also, I couldn't help comparing it. There were there were so many films about heists and plots, and you know, uh, not just neo noir, but sort of comedy crime caper films and Palookaville, and, and of course, Fargo was the inevitable point of comparison. And you know, Fargo was was kind of the film that I think in '96 wasn't it? Fargo had, had sort of blown everybody away. And I couldn't help but watch a simple plan and think, well, it's a bit like Fargo, isn't it? You know, because of the snow. Mm. <laughs> And, and 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 the pregnant woman and, and you know there, there were lots of elements in, of Fargo similarities with Fargo I think in, in this picture um, and revisited revisited I think on DVD I think I don't know if it ever came out on DVD in the UK to be honest because I've got a Region One DVD release somewhere about the house um, and um, I, I watched it when it came out on DVD I when I got a hold of that DVD ran back two thousand one two thousand two I'd say and I didn't watch it since I haven't seen it since until I rewatched it. Uh, last week via the iPlayer, and as, as you said, Aidy, I think watching it with a more mature perspective, distant from particularly from the release of Fargo, I think, um, you know, which was an inevitable point of comparison in '98. Uh, I, I, I thought this is actually quite an incredible film. I think, and I don't, a part of that I think is I've matured. Um, the other part of it is I think I can look back at it now without comparing it with Raimi's other works because he's done so many other different things since then. Um, and the other part of it is, like I say, the distance from the other caper heist, neo-noir pictures in the 90s. It feels very fresh. It feels very mature. I think it feels 
it's probably the most mature, I think, of Fabian's films, I think, in many ways. Um, um, although there's The Gift, of course, which we might mention a bit later, which I think is, is uh, quite an interesting film. Um, but yeah, those, those are my... So I've only seen it three times, but, but the last, this time when I watched it last week, I thought, well, I really wish I'd watched this more <laughs> over the years, you know, since its first release, because I might have realised how good it was, I think. So props to AD for suggesting it. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. I don't know what I don't know why it even occurred to me. It was like it came out kind of came out of the blue. I was sort of think that that seems to fit in with our um our remit. So I thought we'd watch it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. So um I think we'll move on to contemporary reviews. Did anybody sort of find out any uh do any digging into contemporary reviews, reviews of the era, reviews at the time? Uh, I did a quick look on uh Metacritic. It seems to be quite well reviewed across there. Um I mean if you want to get into stats, it's got 24 positive and only one negative. Uh, quite a few places giving it 100. Roger Ebert likes it. Um, yeah. uh, one of the year's best films for a lot of reasons, including its ability to involve the audience almost breathlessly in a story of mounting tragedy, he says. Mm. It's quite a good summation. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be well well liked. It didn't seem to do very well at the box office. It's money, <clears throat> the money didn't take, uh, didn't seem to be that good sort of thing. But it seems to be critically well liked, I think. I think there's some, uh, you know, there's only, like I said, there's only one negative that I can find on Metacritic, but you know, where else do you look these days for reviews apart from Metacritic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, do you find uh, any reviews, contemporary reviews? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm again, so, you know, the, the one from the Guardian, and and it was, um, yeah, again, it, a, a very, maybe maybe sort of they were um, sort of. Some some reviewers sort of picking up on it uh, in comparison to his other films, and and uh, a lot of comment on on its um, I think like you were saying its maturity and its uh, its quality in terms of um, complexity and what it had to say about um, the American dream and and all those things. So so yeah, it it seems to be um, a lot of comment on. Um, how it really sort of picks apart some grim but inevitable and and instantly uh, recognizable sort of flaw of uh, of people and society. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, there's a good good quote here from uh, on Jay Hoberman in the Village Voice where he says, "Its simple plan is a sort of slow motion skid down an icy blacktop. It's a movie you watch with a mounting sense of dread." I yeah. think that's quite a good a good summation because you. You bring, you know, once you know it's that kind of film, the, the moment they find the money, it's all like, oh, this is all going to go horribly wrong with it. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And so it, I like that idea of a slow motion skid down an icy yeah. blacktop. It's like so it's something you can see happening, but you can, you're kind of powerless to stop. And you're like, just don't do that. Don't. Mm, I watched yeah. it with my I watched it with my partner, um, and, and she was um, very much of the I hate watching these kind of films because you just know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I think that's that's you know that's spot on. Yeah, um, this, you know, this, I think the inevitability. Oh, sorry, Pete, you were saying something. So, well, no, it's just it's just saying there was uh, part of the of the Guardian reviews uh, commenting on how you um, we're not allowed to stand outside the story and, and feel superior to it. Um, we, there's that element of the long drawn out inevitability, but also because we see so many, we we see different characters presented very differently at the start but they immediately sort of um 
begin to unravel and they immediately become um, sort of immoral and, 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 and involved in all these things. So again, that, that idea was you, you can't really watch it and think, oh, well, I wouldn't behave that way because you see so many pieces of evidence of, of, of um, I think, that, yeah, no, no, come back come to that later. But I think, you know, you can't really look at this and think, oh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. There's, there's that niggling thing of, uh, yeah, it's inevitable and I would probably have uh, fallen into that trap as, as well. Yeah. I think there's an authenticity to the performance as well, isn't there? I think, uh, especially Paxton and Thornton, who had worked together previously on uh, on Fox Move, um, you know, the Carl Franklin, the Wire picture, which Thornton wrote, which is a superb film, absolutely superb film. But they were quite good friends. But there's a sense of, that sense of amicability between those two characters, I think, which is conveyed very well by the actors. Um, I mean, I, I, I sort of did a Roger, Roger Abbott's review, which you referenced, Sadie, um, which suggested that the plotting was not unfamiliar, but praised Raimi's skill at drawing us, and this is a quote from drawing us step by step into the consequences of criminal action. Um, mm. He claimed it to be one of the best films of the year, as you said. There's a lot of comparison in, in the reviews that I, I read, which um, comparison with Peter Berg's Very Bad Things, uh, which Abbott refers to as a reprehensible film. I don't remember seeing uh, Peter Berg's Very Bad Things. I don't even know if it got a release in the Is years. that Very Bad Things? Is that the Christian Slater one? I think it is, is that, yeah, yeah. Is it the Christian Slater and uh, what's the face? Um, Cameron Diaz, is it? Is that the one I'm oh, thinking I of? I, I don't think I've ever seen it, to be honest with you. I think, I'm pretty sure Slater's in it. I'm not sure if Diaz is in it. Bear, bear, with, bear, bear, bear with me a moment. I saw it at the cinema, Very Bad Things. So it did come out over here, yeah. It, it is, yeah. It's Christian Slater... Um, Cameron Diaz, yes. Yeah. Uh, John, John Favreau. Uh, no, I remember seeing that at the cinema. Um, uh, I thought it was, uh, you know, I don't, I, well, I don't know. I mean, it's, you just saying it just then made it go, oh, I've seen that. I know I did. But yes, I remember seeing that at the cinema because I was just going to see a lot of things at the cinema at the time. Mm. You know. Um, yeah. well, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Do I see much? I can kind of see, you know, it's another one of those something bad happens and spirals out of control type films. Uh, tonally, tonally, they're very bad things. It's very different. Very, very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it seemed even though I've not seen very, but I don't think I've seen it. The, the comparison just seemed um, convenient. I think at the time, I would imagine. Um, I mean, Abbott also compares it to um, Richard Brooks' adaptation of mm. Truman Capote in Cold Blood, um, and he says that both of them are about ordinary people yeah. capable of monstrous deeds. And I, I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Alan Jones's review in the Radio Times referred to a simple plan as sort of elevator pitch like Shallow Grave meets Fargo, which I, I like Alan Jones, but I think that's a bit of a trite comparison. But uh, um, but um, anyway, um, Variety's review said where Fargo it made some distinction between Fargo and the simple plan. Where Fargo is dead tan noir, a simple plan is, quote, more robust Midwestern Gothic that owes as much to Poe as to Chandler. And I think that's interesting. <coughs> Fargo's very much sort of uh, hard-boiled noir turned on its head but a simple plan has that sort of sense of that gothic sensibility to it I think which separates it from Fargo and I can see that I think watching it now probably couldn't see it at the time the variety review also says the film was a quote gamble for more mainstream acceptance by Rainey and, and you can start kind of see that progression in his career from Army of Darkness to Quick and the Dead to this then was it for the love of the game or the gift after, after this um, but there's that sort of you know one two punch of quite uh, mainstream films. I think the gift is is a really good film uh, for love of the game. Kevin Costner, baseball, 
not a very good film. Um, but um, but the Vice review, admittedly, is slightly slightly sneering towards Raimi's previous work, um, which is the stuff that I loved as a kid. So um, they also say that Raimi's core audience will be disappointed in the pick's brooding tone and relative reserve, while others will be shocked by the Helmer's signature mix of mirth and mayhem. And that's probably quite a valid point because at the time, I think I I would have been defined as Raimi's core audience. And I've, I found that the tone was very different to what I was expecting. And I can imagine a lot of people that, that sort of walked into it not knowing who Raimi was. You know, the, like the scene where the, the Raven's pecking out the eyes of the, the corpse of the pilot, which is very sort of blackly comic. It's very Raimi-esque. But things like that, I think, would have turned off <clears throat> more sort of mainstream audiences at the time. I can sort of see that. Um, seven to two masters approach. <clears throat> Janet Maslin in the New York Times <clears throat> highlighted the Midwestern setting. Excuse me and drew parallels with Paul Schrader's Affliction, uh, which is a fine film that's based on the Russell Banks novel. Um, I really like Affliction, but it came out the same year. Um, and Maslin places both films in the process. Affliction set in the Midwest, snow-covered landscapes, about family, sort of families being torn apart. So you can see the parallels there. And particularly Maslin plays Paxton's fine, she quotes, says, fine, sturdy performance. And she also, also plays that of Thornton. And she describes his performance as a haunting mix of menace and fragility, which I think is very good. <coughs> but in the comparisons that I read, there were lots of, lots of mention of Peter Berg's, the reviews that I read, also mentioned of Peter Berg's then recent very bad things to be said. Quite a few oblique comparisons with It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know if it was a sort of Christmassy set in the snow, um, but comparisons of Hank with Jimmy Stewart's character in that film. And I think there's a lot of, in Paxton's performances, Hank, you can sort of see that Jimmy Stewart-esque everyman character, um, particularly. The thing that surprised me looking into the reviews of the era, and maybe I just didn't find ones that mentioned this, was watching it recently, I was struck by the parallels with the... And it, it, it's, it's so, it sort of hits you in the face. It's not anything that's particularly subtle. But Macbeth, and um, particularly Bridget Fonda's character as, as Lady Macbeth and Hank as Macbeth, and... And um, I was surprised that no reviews of the time that I've read um, uh, sort of covered that. I mentioned it. Um, um, but uh, anyway, nevertheless, lots of references to Fargo as well, of course. Um, so we'll move on to the production. Um, did anybody sort of find out anything about the production of the picture? Uh, I, I, I didn't know. Sorry. Uh, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got plenty of notes. Uh, Pete, have you, do you know anything yep. about the production? No, no, no. Um, I mean, it's based on a, a novel by Scott Smith, uh, published in 1990. <clears throat> Smith also wrote The Ruins, which was adapted fairly recently. I say fairly recently, but when you get to middle age, that, that encompasses about 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> but, um, I think it was about sort of 10 years ago, wasn't it, The Ruins? There was a, a film adaptation of that. Um, and Smith adapted his own novel into a screenplay. I have to admit, I've not read I've not read the novel. I should do, really. Um, but apparently there'd been several attempts to adapt the novel previously because it was quite well received. And so in the early 90s, mid-90s, there were several attempts to adapt it. But all of, the, entered, uh, all, all of these uh, attempts had fallen apart before entering production. Um, uh, particularly um, the writer, Raimi, taking charge of the film, uh, it, been, um, it entered pre-production, I think, with John Borman. And you can sort of see John, you know, Man Against the Environment. You can see that Borman S. Mm. Um, if you think of Excalibur Deliverance, uh, you think of those sort of great iconic Borman films. 
Um, you, I think you can see that here. And, and Borman set up a lot of the groundwork for the production, including some of the casting. Um, Borman had uh, already cast Thornton as Jacob, and Thornton suggested Paxton for the role of Hank. So those two parts were already cast um, before uh, Raimi came on board, apparently. Um, other than that, different sources seem to suggest different levels of involvement by Borman at the pre-production stage. But I think um, he helped sort of shape the script in a certain direction, the direction that it took. Um, I mean, the title, of course, is all too obviously ironic. Uh, as you've said, Aidy, we know from the outset that this simple plan is anything but simple and will go awry at some point. Um, and I think, as, as we've covered already briefly, we'll go over this in a bit more detail, but I think one of the film's great strengths is these everyman characters that uh, have very believable anchor performances by Paxton Thornton and, and Brent Briscoe is often forgotten, but uh, um, again, Briscoe was brought onto the production, I think, by Thornton, who'd worked with him previously, as Lou. Um, the filming took place in Ashland, Wisconsin, and Delano, Minnesota. Um, apparently, the uh, hotel in Wisconsin where the crew stayed was alleged to be haunted, um, um, which is kind of, <laughs> I mention that because it's it's sort of quite a Fabian-esque idea, isn't it? Um, and during shooting, of course, the, 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 the shooting conditions, as you might imagine watching the film, uh, were quite extreme. The wind chill factor dropped to minus 60 Fahrenheit one night when we were filming um, one evening, which is incredible. I mean, um, maybe enlisted Danny Elfman to write the score. Elfman, of course, at that time was mostly known for his work with uh, Tim Burton, but he yeah. had worked on uh, the score for Maybe's Darkman, and also he composed the March of the Dead for Army of Darkness. Um, although most of that score was composed by Joe DeLuca, um, maybe composed the Marches of the Dead, which is a. Dilla, dilla, da, 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 da. <laughs> I told you I'd sing for you. And of course, Elfman would go on to work on Raimi's Spider Man films uh, later. And I think, particularly, uh, Elfman's music for this is quite Morricone esque in places. And I was, I was watching the film the other week, and, and some of the motifs, the musical motifs, reminded me very heavily of. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily that Elfman imitated or was even aware of it because they came out at the same time, approximately. But um, some of the motifs reminded me a lot of any Americone score for Oliver Stone's U-Turns, which is another neo-noir, but it's kind of set in a very opposite um, environment. It's more of a film soleil set in, in, in sort of a sun drench. I think it's Nevada, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Some of the musical motifs are similar. And that also had uh, Philip Thornton in it as well, and quite a memorable performance. Um, the photography in this is by Alar Cavillo, very beautifully shot. At the time, he'd only shot one theatrical feature previously, which was Matt Clark's 1988 adaptation of Hugh Leonard's play, Death. Um, there's lots of TV work, though. He was quite seasoned in shooting TV productions. Um, and he'd photographed, I think what he'd done, what he'd shot prior to this immediately was Robert Harmon's 96 biopic of John Gotti with Amanda Sante. That was a TV, made-for-TV production, but it's quite well photographed, I think. Um, I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is, is some of the effects works by KMB as well, isn't it? Um, I think that includes the, the, the grisly stuff for the, the yeah. decomposing pilot in, in, in the plane. Um, you know, um, a Kurtzman, Nicotero and Berger. Berger? 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 Yeah, Berger yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just, uh, just to add one, one, one thing here from IMDb, which is quite interesting. Before Borman was on board, this was between 94 and 96, Ben Stiller was set to direct. With it was set to direct with uh, Nicholas Cage to star. Can you well Nick Cage at the time it had just come off Red Rock West, wouldn't he? So he's quite probably quite a reasonable choice, isn't he? Yeah, 
It was Cage's salary began to affect the film's budget and then still walked away. So Well, Con Air would have come out, wouldn't it? And that, I imagine his, bus, his, um, his salary mm. would have escalated. Then. I think I think um, it would it would probably have, have suffered from the the um, well, the criticism of of The Shining with um, with Jack Nicholson where um, uh, he already seems a bit bonkers before um, you know he finally mm-hmm. sort of loses it and may, maybe well, yeah, the the Hank character would would be a bit like that with uh, with Cage as well it doesn't say what role Cage is going to play maybe uh, Cage would have been the the Thornton role Jacob. I don't know yeah yeah, yeah. it could have um, could have been you never know um, I mean. I'm- I'm not the hugest fan of, of Cage, but I, I think, you know, when you look at Red, Red, Red Rock West, I always get tongue-tied over that one. Uh, John Dahl's Red, he's excellent in that, I think. And, and I can sort of see him as, as particularly as Jacob, I think, in that, that era. Um, you know, Conair, I've never seen Conair at the cinema, and I go, oh, my word, that was, that was 100 minutes of explosions. It gave me a massive moment. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Nicholas Cage with his weird mullet. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the only positive outcome from Conair was uh, Malkovich, who I think might have to watch Malkovich. Oh, I, don't know. I think Steve Buscemi yeah. is, uh, is pretty cool. Oh, Buscemi, yeah, I, forgot yeah. his, um, I forgot what his character's called, but yeah. I've only seen yeah. that one. So the cinema, I didn't, never watched it again. And, I, uh, I, what's, I, his, what, what, what's his name? Um, uh, <coughs> Col Meany. He's good in it as well. As the FBI guy who gets his car trashed, Connor is great. For, Connor, Connor is great. Stupid fun. I have to. I have to say. I, I, I don't. You know. I stand up for Connor. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's, I don't. I don't. Uh, stop any slight. You know. It's, um, I can. I can well, see why it would give you a headache. Though. I, I think I saw it at the cinema. Which is like, you know. I, I, to be fair, I mean, it's just The Rock too in it in all but name. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. That's what it felt like to me. And thematically, it just felt like The Rock too. <laughs> But Ben Stiller went on to the direct Zero Effect a couple of years later, which is quite quite an interesting film, Zero Effect. Um, sure, that's Ben Stiller. Um, I'm just going to Yeah, check. I mean, obviously Zoolander and everything, didn't he? He went on to have a very big career. Um, yeah, oh, no, he, he was in Zero Effect. It was Jake Castell that directed Zero Effect. Again, that's uh, not well, Stiller had just directed, uh, what did he do? He did The Cable Guy. I didn't know he directed that. But he also did, obviously, Reality Bites around that time. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, 1994 wasn't Reality Bites. So, yeah, so 94, yeah, Reality Bites had just done. So I can see why he might have got, might have been interested in this. And I suppose, you know, Cage, if he sort of tones down the um, the role from uh, uh, Raising Arizona, could be, could be Jacob. Yeah. Ironically, mm-hmm. funnily enough, Ben Stiller was the executive producer on, on The Ruins, the Scott Smith <laughs> I didn't know that. It's just like um, a big spider web of connections. Yeah, six degrees of separation and all. Yeah. Um, so I think so speaking of directors, it's a good point to move on to personnel. Um, mm-hmm. About Sam yeah. Raimi as, as the director. Hey, did you want to go first as a Sam Raimi fan? Oh, what do I say about Sam Raimi? Well, I, I, um, I did, um, when I did my national diploma in media, long time ago, uh, when it first ran at the, uh, we were at the Grimsby Art College um, in the beginning of the 90s, I did a 15-minute documentary on Sam Raimi. That's how big a fan of his I was. Uh, praising praising him to high heavens, as you know, as you would do sort of thing at that age. Um, but I, I obviously first became aware of Raimi with Evil Dead, um, which I watched way before I should have done. Uh, because I was very much under 18 when I saw that. Um, and then obviously, um, I think I, I think I then 
there was a gap and I saw Evil Dead 2, then I saw Crime Wave um, and, and everything like that. And, and I, I just I just loved it. There was no, there really was nothing else like a Raimi film um, in amongst all the, you know, sort of genre players around that time. Your Carpenters, your, your Toby Hoopers, um, your Wes Cravens, and everything like that. Sam Raimi's films just just stood out for sheer excess um, and sheer, you know, you know, it just it just didn't seem to care what he did with the with the camera and stuff like that. But everything seemed to have a point. It just it was like you know, let's just do this. Let's do, and as as a you know, as a teenager sort of thing, I was just like absolutely blown away by Raimi's stuff. Um, for you know, for all the wanton, you know, over the top Looney Tunesness of Evil Dead Two, um, and then going into Army, Army of Darkness with it's about I don't know how many cuts there are of Army of Darkness. I've seen about five, six oh. different versions of it. Um, with with so many different endings, I've no idea which is canon and which is not. I don't know. Um, um, but I was a big fan of a big fan of Raimi's, um, and and just you know, I remember um, there was the series that Jonathan Ross did um, on uh, different directors. Yes, that was it. Yeah, and he was he was one yeah. of the uh, featured directors on there, if I remember rightly. So I, I, I actually. I actually uh, re- had recorded that and, and used to watch that quite a lot and use some of that footage, obviously, for the documentary I made. Um, I mean, but, yeah, I, it took you, I, AD, but uh, there's quite a good mention in, in that documentary of uh, Crime Wave, which yes. was written by the Cohens, of course, wasn't it? And, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's where I first became aware of Crime Wave because, it, I mean, just to sort of put this in context, this is late 80s, early 90s sort of thing. You know, the Internet's not a thing and finding out film information... Was oh, tricky, you know. Was was a tricky thing back. You know, we're you know based in Grimsby. Um, you know, you you might you know buying magazines and stuff was a you know I was still at school, so I didn't have a lot of money. Um, finding information on films and stuff was only what you got in the magazine you got for free in when you went to the cinema. Um, yeah. You know, and and the old trailer on TV. So Crime Wave. When I found out about that, because I don't think that reached cinema in Grimsby for certain. No. no. Um, and it it didn't seem to do much on video. I don't seem to remember it being, you know, like the Evil Dead was, I think, you know, one of those, you know, video nasties, wasn't it? It was one of the, it was one of the poster boys to the video nasty craze, uh, because of obviously the tree scene, um, which is, you know, even I think is un- unnecessarily gratuitous. <laughs> Should we, you know, let's be kind. Horror film can never be gratuitous in a horror film. Well, true, true, but this is, you know, too much of a sexual nature. I think, you know, that that, that wow. particular scene. I think that's, I think. I, 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 I was glad that that, that scene that was kind of taken out from Siebel there too. I, that, that's a whole different conversation. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I was a huge, huge fan of Raimi. Um, and so coming, like I said, previously sort of thing, a simple plan seemed a step away from what I was used to. I was, I don't think he, I was I not even been aware it was, was his film. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was a great fan of Raimi's at, at this point through, through the eighties and into, into the nineties. And uh, unlike yourself sort of thing, I, I'd even enjoyed uh, Quick and the Dead as well. Um, yeah. Just for no, a uh, yeah, fun take on the western. I, I like the Quick and the Dead now, but at the time it felt sort of a bit Hollywood. Sharon Stone, Leonardo DiCaprio there's an actor that I didn't particularly like at the time, but he's really grown into his own, I think, since. And uh, I mean, there's stuff I really enjoyed in Quick and the Dead. Uh, Lance Henriksen, which got his performance as uh, uh, can't remember what his character's called, but it plays homage to that Stacey Keats character, doesn't it? In uh, yeah. Life and Times of Bean, which is a film that I really love. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I've revisited Quick, Quick and the Dead since, and, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've not got anything bad to say about it, but it's just at the time it, it, it felt a bit Hollywood. 
you know. I think and, uh, I think to me it felt like Hollywood through the lens of you know Sam Raimi sort of thing in the fact yeah. of like it's a single location, this one real kind of high concept, but taken to it's it's almost taken to the extreme um, of this you know this this town run by a, an evil gunslinger and it has a gunfight and that's it and you know the 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 cast of characters are all these sort of really sort of or sort of stereotype western type characters and yeah. i don't just you know i just thought it was you know absolutely ridiculous in a good way um you know to even down to the uh you know the the rationale for you know sharon stone's characters hating gene hackman you know just felt so over the top you know can't just kill the father <laughs> the father can't yeah. just be killed yeah. just it just and, and that you know it, it felt ridiculous in every way sort of thing but in a in a way that's trod you know the, the right line of acceptable ridiculousness if that yeah, makes sense yeah. i mean it came as part of that post unforgiven revival of the western the, the revisionist westerns that, that appeared after unforgiven and there was there was the year before there was bad girls wasn't there which is that sort of pseudo feminist western yes. with, um, yeah andy mcdowell and and largely almost wholly sort of female lead lead characters um mm. and I, I much preferred i think the quick the quick and the dead to bad girls i think at the time um you know and it was uh uh i think it's an, an interesting film looking back on it it's the same as a simple plan i think looking back on it after a few years of separation um i think i've got to sort of even more time for it i think mm-hmm. and gene hackman's fabulous in it for just chewing oh, so yeah. much seats just chewing so much scenery it's ridiculous um yeah. you can see just see he just relishes that role of being that you know cocky you know so sure of himself he's just incredible in those kind of uh, portrayals he's just great yeah so. yeah, yeah 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 good stuff there you go Pete, do you have any, thanks AD. <laughs> do you have, Pete, do you have any sort of uh any comments about sam raimi well i i just say i was i was thinking as we was going on um did, there's there's some there's some potentially really interesting things to say uh with the comparison of dark man i think mm. um which is you know it's a I think it's one of those films that, that splits a lot of people, but that that sense of the the ordinary people being um, capable of monstrous deeds, and 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 the, again, it's uh, a man with a simple plan. You know, he wants he wants to, he, you know, he, he wants his wife back. He wants his sort of family life back, uh, and that's it. And and where if where I that may, takes him? Yeah, I mean, if I may interrupt you there, Pete, that's an interesting point of comparison because I've got some notes for later on. Um, talk about the similarity of this story with um, there's that story in Plato's Republic. I don't know if you've read the Republic, but uh, the story of Gyges, the shepherd who discovers a ring that bestows upon its wearer invisibility, and, and Gyges, because he believes himself to be invisible, uh, he's unafraid of being caught, commits all sorts of you know unpleasant, unjust acts, if you like. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there with regards to that similarity with. Um, that man and a simple plan that uh, this sense of if, if if we're stripped of the risk of being caught for things you know through that man of course there's the the obvious disguise isn't it? the the fact that you can change his face or put on different faces um you know if, uh, if we're stripped away that sort of uh, that uh, possibility of being caught for doing bad things um uh, you know uh, uh would we do unjust things you know there's that moral question isn't there that, that anchors both of those films i think Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. No, 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 that was that, that was uh, that was it. I went on to Plato, which is a bit too, <laughs> <laughs> a bit too heavy for you know a Tuesday morning, perhaps. 
No, but uh, but um, you know, regarding uh, Raimi, um, I uh, I'm, I'm ready for for my uh, for my computer to explode when uh, I said I don't think I've even actually seen the Evil Dead films. Have you not? No, no I think I've seen bits of them, but. Uh... Well, we we should correct that. <laughs> I'll help you watch them. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you another thing, Paul. I haven't seen the Godfather films. Well, <laughs> we should do Lord. it. Lord. Um, um, oh, dear, I'm facing now. I think I saw the third one. I think I might have seen the third, third one and the second one at the cinema. Not the second one on original release, but I think I've seen it since. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw the third one at the cinema. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I can I can recommend I can recommend going back and watching Crime Wave. I think Crime Wave is incredible. No, I, I really I like when I first saw it and it was a struggle to get hold of it as you said, Aidy, because I, I can't remember if it was available on VHS in the UK. Certainly, I don't think it came out in the cinema anywhere near us. Um, yeah. Crime Wave was, uh, but I first saw it and I thought this is a good film. I like I like Crime Wave because I'd seen the incredibly strange film show as you had. And they talk about the failure of Crime Wave, and I think they're quite negative about Crime Wave in, in, in that documentary. I think maybe talks about it. I think Bruce Campbell talks about it. And, and, and they all talk about it in a very negative way. And I watched it and thought, actually, this is pretty good. There's a Blu-ray coming out uh, later in March, I think, from Indicator Films, uh, which is kind of quite a reputable um, uh, sort of boutique Blu-ray label. Um, mm. And uh, you know, I'm going to be first in the queue to buy that because uh, I really like Crime Wave. I mean, yeah. my experience with Raby was uh, like South Raby. I'd, I'd sort of grown up with uh, the Evil Dead, um, the Evil Dead Two. I do remember at the time um, uh, I was prohibited by my mother. We had VHS copies of A Clockwork Orange and Straw Dogs, and um, bless her, my mum said you can't watch those, Paul. And uh, <laughs> I was quite frustrated at this. I went on to write my master's thesis on straw dogs, um, actually, funnily enough. But a uh, uh, big pecky power fan. But uh, I was quite frustrated. And I sort of wrote an impassioned letter once about why the representation of violence in Clockwork and Straw Dogs was kind of more acceptable, if you like, or more would be better for my developing sense of morality than, um, you know, watching The Evil Dead, which I've already seen and loved. You know, I won't say, but I mean, Evil Dead was built as the ultimate experience in grueling terror, wasn't it? And there's a big shift in tone between Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Evil Dead 2 is wacky fun. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, yeah. this is my level of Raimi obsession. I had a, an Army of Darkness, an Evil Dead 2, and an original Evil Dead quad poster. In the yeah, was it the blue one with the girl coming out of the uh, the ground? I had that Evil no, Dead poster. No, Evil Dead 2 poster, sorry. Yeah, oh, I had, I, had an, I had an Evil Dead one. Yeah, I, I had a V-print of the Evil Dead poster later on, but uh, the, the mm. Evil Dead 2 poster was the Palace video poster. With the oh, right, yeah. Graham yeah. Humphries, I think it was, wasn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, I was a huge fan of, of Amy at the time. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I like the Zany humour, the Three Stooges-style slapstick. Uh, mm-hmm. I've re-watched uh, last year uh, via the projector. We had the lockdown, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll watch some films that I've not seen for a while. I re-watched um, Amy Darkness. And Evil Dead on the projector. I mean, they're, they're incredible experiences. Um, I keep meaning at some point Evil Dead 2, and I'm waiting for the Crime Wave Blu ray to come out to revisit that. But uh, I mean, Dark Man, um, I love Dark Man. As you said, Pete, it's quite sort of an interesting moral. It's a comic book movie, but it's Phantom mm. of the Opera. It's also this story of Guy, Jesus, Invisible Man, H.G. Wells. Um, 
I, I, I was I, just to be fair. I always thought Darkman was just um, somewhere in the middle of. Um, I, I don't know. I, I kind of get what you're saying, people. I always just thought it was just a bit in the middle of something like uh, uh, Batman and the Punisher, and was sort of in in that in that sort of realm of sort of superhero. I, I think it was the. That Sorry, Pete. Sorry, I was just going to say the, the interesting thing with with Darkman that removes it from even uh, Batman and things like that, and and it removes it a bit from a simple plan, is is the idea that not not only does he not feel pain, but as a as a as, as a result of that, he his emotional sort of um, network doesn't work. So he, he as as a as a symptom of his physical sort of um, injuries, he he goes insane. Which is kind of yeah. you could you could describe as maybe a bit of a, a cop out, or or it, it it says less about the human condition because it is a part of what happens to him that 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 he his morality and things like that get get stripped away. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I I really like that. And, and, and as you say, it's sort of that era Batman, the Punisher. You know, those comic book era films that felt very dark. In some ways, and I don't want to get too controversial about it, they felt as much as they sell sort of the the current crop of Marvel and DC movies as sort of American mythology and, and sort of as, as as movies for adults. Those late eighties, early nineties comic book movies felt much more adult to me in, in some ways. But that's a, that's another kind of worms, isn't it? Um, uh, and then of course after Darkman, um, we had that sort of change of pace. Well, not so much. It was a gradual shifting, wasn't it, with, into Quick and the Dead, uh, as we've talked about, and then onto a simple, a simple plan, which felt like a big change of pace for Amy at the time, a much more somber type of film. Um, I, I think it's worth mentioning as well that Darkman people often regard it as a dry run for Amy's Spider-Man as well, don't they? In, in two thousand, mm, yeah, yeah, very much so, yeah. Um, and I like. I mean, I had a conversation that doesn't sidetrack it too much, but. Uh, had a conversation with a little boy about uh, Spider-Man, and he said, um, "My ten-year-old, that's me, my oldest son, my middle, middle child." And he said, "Who's your favourite Spider-Man actor, Dad?" And I said, "I said probably still Tobey Maguire, I think. Forget Spider-Man, dreadful film." <laughs> and I yeah. think we could all agree. But um, I think Tobey Maguire's performance as, as Spider-Man, as, and offset by Willem Dafoe in that Raimi picture, I, I, I thought it was an incredible experience, to be honest with you. Um, but um, but uh, you know, starting with uh, Hollywood, um, simple plan, big change of pace. For, excuse me, put my teeth back in. Big change of pace for Amy. Um, he followed that up with a gift, which was uh, written by or co-written by Billy Bob Thornton, based on Billy Bob Thornton's mother's own experiences as a psychic. Um, I really like the gift. I know you'd put something in the chat, Amy, about the gift. Um, mm. um, yeah. Well, I mean. On the back of a simple plan, I ended up with a, a bit of a this this period of Raimi triple plan uh, triple bill. So um, to be fair, I've I'm completely unaware of for love of the game. Um, completely unaware of it. I've never seen it. I've never heard of it. It's a blank <laughs> when I saw it. I was like, what the hell's that? Oh, um, but the quick and the dead, simple plan, the gift. We I watched all three uh, last weekend um, and sort of could see this sort of thing. And yeah, the gift. I think you made the comment sort of thing feels very anonymous. Um, yeah. in its directorial style and I think that's pretty much spot on it really does simple plan of the gift you know don't feel like the Raimi films that we used to sort of thing but they show a sort of you know a growing maturity in in, the, in his ability to deal with things um, I think the gift has one of the better um, uh, Keanu Reeves performances as well when he doesn't play oh, a Keanu yeah. Reeves type character yeah. it's really good in it it's really menacing 
Um, it's a very good film. Yeah, it, it is. It is uh, more enjoyable. I, I saw, did see the gift at the cinema. I remember seeing that um, and thought it was okay. You know, thought it was, thought it was you know, uh, a decent way to spend an evening at the time. Uh, but I enjoyed it again a bit more this time. I thought there was more to it. You know, uh, Greg Kinnear is good in it. There's some some nice performances. J J T Walsh, who would who uh, he would obviously who would, who would then go on to be you know J Jonah Jameson. Um, in the perfect casting in the Spider-Man films, if I'm if I'm remembering rightly. Um, 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 uh, is it J.G. Walsh? Am I thinking of the right character? Right guy? No, no, it's uh, who's, the, who's Hang on a minute, let me look. J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons. Sorry, that's what I'm thinking of. J.K. Simmons. Yes. No, I know it was J. Something. <laughs> um, he he did play J. Jonah Jameson, didn't he? It did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yes, I knew I was on the right track. Apologies for that. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly, sort of thing. And it began with J, so you know, and it's uh, and it's and it's ten, it's ten, you know, it's ten to eleven. It's ten to eleven in the morning. And I've not had a drink, um, so am. you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, he then went on to do the Spider-Man films. Uh, my favorite, the Spider-Man films, is probably the obvious one is Spider-Man Two, oh, yeah, yeah. which I think is one of the best. Uh, superhero films ever made. Um, I think it's incredible on every level. I think it's a step up from Spider Man. Um, it's a great uh, Alfred Molina as uh, Duck Ock. I mean, yeah, it's fabulous. Yeah, it is. As comic movies go, I think that's kind of the peak of the 21st century ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I like all, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Marvel stuff as well, but it's just as a there's so much to enjoy in Spider-Man 2. And I, and I much prefer the Raimi Spider-Man films to the uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, duo yeah, yeah. with uh, Garfield, um, which I didn't enjoy at all, really. Um, and then obviously um, the sort of almost back to basics of a Raimi film with Drag Me to Hell. What do What do you think? To what's you know, any comments on Drag Me to Hell? I liked it. I, t- I mean, I, I took the wife to see it. Two thousand nine, wasn't it? I think. And uh, and uh, she, I don't know. <laughs> She she didn't know how to react to it, and I, I mm-hmm. it's a Sam Raimi picture, and it's kind of it feels very much like a Sam Raimi picture, and, and I I thought it was uh, very good, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I really like Drag Me Tell. This it's got that it's almost that Evil Dead esque um, intensity in some of those sequences, especially the bit I think there's the sequence where the fingers in the mouth and stuff, and the close ups, and the there's some it's really part- sort of like oh <laughs> you know some moments that was great. Um, I mean, there was do, a, a, a sorry, Eddie. There's a there's so an article that I wrote uh, last week. Well, no, I didn't write it last week. It was published last, published last week about um, Andy Milligan's horror films, and, and somebody sort of uh, responded to that and sent me a, a, a comment about it. About and they said um, his Milligan's work is vitally abject, and I think that that describes what you're saying about Raimi's work that you see in Drumming Tale as well. This sort of sense of the abject. You know the the sort of the the, the repulsion that you feel that you feel that things that are decomposing or you know mm. like somebody shoving like a corpse shoving fingers into your mouth and and you kind of see that in a simple plan I think with the the corpse in the um, keep coming back to such a, a vivid image of the corpse and the, the of the pilot in the plane and the raven pecking out its eyes um, because everything up to that point in the film I think sort of leads you on to a it's very static, sort of static. Mm. I don't mean that in a, a divisory way, but very static um, neo-noir narrative. 
And then all of a sudden you've got this very gothic moment where Paxton as Hank climbs into the, the plane and the the pilot's moving about, isn't he? Yeah. Or the body's moving about. And he, he yeah. thinks the pilot might be alive. And then maybe cuts to that um, side-on profile shot in the pilot's corpse. Great um, effect by KMB with the ravens, which you've already seen outside the plane. Um, yeah. Uh, um, and and Jacob got a line. To, like they, they just wait around. They just wait around for something to die. It's a weird job, doesn't it? About those ravens. Yeah. And um, you see that raven picking at the eye of that corpse in the plane, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of all. It's it's very. It, it's the abject, isn't it? It's this, the vitally abject. The the sort of the, uh, the, the the repulsive, um, repulsively abject as a raison d'etre. Like yeah, I think it's, 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 I think that's sort of echoed as well in the. Um, uh, it's not quite as obviously you know it's quite as gruesome sort of thing, but I think in in its sort of the the length of time it takes when he uh, he smothers the the farmer when they find out the farmer's um, on the snowmobile's not dead, um, and he makes the decision to to smother him sort of thing, and that could have been a a quick long shot, but it's done in real close up. Um, you know, of the, of the farmer's face and the sort of pain and terror that he's feeling. It's that similar yeah. sort of thing, you know, sort yeah. of put, putting you right in there. Yeah, there's Hank's point of view, isn't there? He's looking down, he, he covers his mouth. Yeah. And he holds his nose. And then there's a, a close-up looking up at Hank and he sort of looks away. But it's not a mm-hmm. look of guilt or regret. It's sort of a, it's, it's somebody watching and we're going to get caught. Which is kind yeah, of exactly, why yeah. I referenced that, that story from Plato's The Republic. Um, earlier, you know, the story of Gyges, because mm. he's not bothered about what he's doing. And, and, and a bit later on, somebody says, um, his wife says, Sarah says to him something about, uh, and, and I've got the quote in, in, in some of my notes for later on, she said something about, uh, you know, they wouldn't expect that you're capable mm. of doing what you've done. And, 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 and Gary Cowell, who was also in The Gift, as you remember, as, as, as David Duncan, and yes. I really like Gary Cowell as an actor. Um, when he comes in as that spoiler fake FBI agent, um, he says something about um, you, you're not you're not cold blooded enough, mm. blooded enough to do what needs to be done, or something like that, doesn't he? Yeah, and he clearly is. He's clearly got that capacity within him already to to do to murder somebody in such a, an intimate way. I think. Mm. Um, I think it's that depiction of violence as being deeply unpleasant, I think, which separates this. I mean, I know Raimi's other films, the violence isn't something that's, that's meant to be depicted, but both it's slapstick, it's funny. The one exception, as you said, A.D. earlier, was that, that, that sequence with the trees in um, The Evil Dead, which always stands out in that film as being, when you watch it, you think most of the violence is sort of quite funny, you know, and they're stabbing people in the ankle and you, you sort of squirm, but you laugh. But when... Um, the girl and it's is it Linda or is it the other female character? I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I can't remember. But she's raped in the woods by the trees. And yeah. I used to, when I used to teach A level film studies and A level media studies, and we did a module on film censorship. I used to show that sequence, and uh, you know, I used to show a good chunk of the film, and then they'd come to that sequence and and, and sort of say, well, actually, that's kind of that's really unpleasant. Um, I think it needs to be. I think it, you know. I think it, 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 as we, 
I mean, I was I was joking a bit, you know, I, I made light of the fact that advance and how it would be uh, gratuitous, um, which is kind of a philosophical question, but uh, I think in that sequence, it, it feels gratuitous, but it needs to feel that gratuitous. I think it needs to, to do that to have that, that impact, that it's, it's such an unpleasant thing. Um, and, um, likewise, you know, in A Simple Plan, which is a, Otherwise, a fairly straightforward neo noir picture. You've got these sort of two, two or maybe there's a couple of others that, that appear a bit later when when Hank, um, but Lou's killed by Jacob. Yeah. Um, well, I was uh, going yeah. to say when when uh, Lou's wife is shot, it, I, I, I guess yeah. that's that's more like a, a Raimi sort of piece of violence, perhaps, where she's sort of thrown yeah. across the the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, you know, there's some sort of, uh, I don't know if it's the actress or a stunt double, but she's pulled back by wires, isn't she, into the mm. kitchen unit. And mm. I, I wrote that in my notebook when I was watching the film, I sort of wrote that down, I, I said how impactful that is. You know, in, in the context of Hollywood, we talk about Con Air and so on, but we talk about, you know, the action, the Hollywood action film and how uh, impactless violence often is in, in mm. Hollywood action films in the 90s. But uh, you watch that sequence when um, Hank shoots. She pulls out the gun as his pistol, and he shoots her with his shotgun. Mm. And then said, as if um, uh, um, as if uh, Lou shot his wife, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it's such a, a, a powerful moment when you know you've got this this sort of frumpy middle-aged woman, and she's still a bit set up as such, um, a bit of a harridan, but she's she's mm. so dedicated to her husband that when she sees her husband mm. dead, she decides to. Yeah take action and then all of a sudden Hank blows her away with a shotgun and you know yeah, it's away which is sort of in, in, well, I was, sorry I know I was interrupted but it was, she's instantly dehumanised she, she, she's instantly ragdolled you know to, yeah. all that life and, and bolsterousness has, has gone and I, I think uh, earlier we're, we're just sort of mentioning the, the Lou's wife when we were talking about the characters I think Lou's wife and her reaction to what's going on, I think, is very different from all the others. Because, again, I think Hank sort of does his thing of, oh, you know, it's not what it looks like, or, you know, let's talk about this. But she doesn't have any of it, does she? You know, she's, she doesn't care about the money or, or anything. She she reacts uh, the most, I don't know, human, the or what, were you, what you would hope how you would hope you would react you know there's no thought of money or getting away with anything she's just distraught and you know well, emotional the, the great, uh, yeah that's right the, the great irony is that um you know when 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 they find the money and hank says we shouldn't tell anybody about this and, and then he sees lou going to his wife and, and mm. is her name carla i think it's carla isn't it and um he says well he says to jacob well He's, he's obviously going to sort of blab. And then the first thing that Hank does when he goes home is he, is he tells Sarah, he says, what, what would you do if you found all this money in the, in the yeah. woods? And, uh, yeah. and, 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 and that's the beginning of the, the Lady Macbeth. Mm. And, and, and um, I, I was going to come on to Bridget Fonda's performance next, but, uh, but um, you know, so I sort of read quite a few articles that said that, that the film's misogynistic because of Bridget Fonda's character, but she's she's just the classic femme fatale. She's we talk about toxic masculinity, but uh, you know she's the toxic woman that, that, that sort of yeah, edges, well, especially if around you... the edge of a fight in the school playground and yeah. edges the guys to beat each other. You see, I thought Fonda, Fonda's performance or character sort of thing wasn't like, and I think I think he's he's really well done. Any sort of thing because you know she's 
so much in the background. She's got this, you know, you know, job in a library sort of thing. And she gives that great, great speech about three quarters of the way through where, you know, is it, I can't remember what it is sort of thing, but it's like, is this is this all there is to life? And we've got a chance mm. to have something else. And it gives yeah. her a, a, a whole, you know, a, you know, because he says at the beginning that there's that quote at the beginning of the film where uh, uh, hang on a minute, let me just let me just find it. So sort of there's, there's a there's a great quote at the start of the film where he sort of explains, you know, what he thought he had mm. about his perfect life. Um, mm. And uh, and uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Um, when I was still a kid, I remember my father telling me that he thought that it took what it took for a man to be happy. Yeah. Simple things, a wife he loves, a decent job, friends and neighbours who like and respect him. And for a while there, without hardly even realising I had all that, I was a happy man. And the, the the sort of, you know, that sort of pushing Fonda's character into just a, being a thing for him to be happy about, um, yeah. I think is quite interesting. And then for, for the part towards the end where she just turns around and goes, look, I am not happy. Mm. Um, yes. yeah. you, this yeah. is, you know, wondering what to have for tea every night, wondering this, da, 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 boring job, uh, just life and life. And that's not, you know, and I think it 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 gives her character sort of thing such a, a more depth it, when she, you know, you you understand why she's doing what she's doing and takes mm. her from that Lady Macbeth, um, you know, sort of archetype into, yeah. you know, a, a much more three-dimensional character. And I really thought that part was excellent. I really yeah. like that. Well, I think yeah. there's a couple of things there, isn't there? I mean, I think for me, I mean, I, I was going to talk about that later and I probably will we'll just talk about it later, but th- that speech there, I think is, is, is pivotal for the whole thing. You know, the, the, the idea, you know, for what I took from the film was, you know, about everyone having a simple plan and, and what is happiness and things like that would come to, to later. But I think, you know, um, comparing Bridget Fonda in the Fen Fatale in this with, with the film we saw last um, after Dark My Sweet, you know, you see yeah. it as a, a much more effective um, character there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, to go back to what you said, Aidy, you quoted that opening voiceover by Hank um, and he quoted it word for word. But there's a lot of irony in that because, of course, there's the he takes his wife for granted, but also the allusions to his father, which we we later we learn from Jacob, that his father uh, over mortgaged the house, the family farm, um, lost 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 the family home, the family farm, to pay for Hank's university education, and then committed suicide so that his his sons would be given the uh, insurance on which to live. Yeah. And, and Hank's completely ignorant of this, isn't he? And, and, and Jacob tells him this story. He says, well, surely you knew. Surely, didn't you realise that this is what Dad had done? And all that, that, that opening narration by Hank is, is kind of undermined by the fact how naive mm. he is, you know, yeah. which is it's a very gradual revelation as well. Um, yeah. How easily he's swept up by the, the greed and the paranoia that's engendered by, by Sarah. Um, and Sarah's speech, as we say, there's a lot of truth to it, of course. Um, but then she ends with this kind of emphasising her own material comfort. She says, uh, she explains to Hank why she's urged him on. She says that the, the comfortable life doesn't afford the comforts that she wants. She sort of admits that he's, 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 he's got a reasonably well-paid job, but she's only going out to restaurants on special occasions, having to skip the appetizer and come home before dessert. Yeah. Do you think that would make me happy? Well, well, yeah, generally speaking, that's what the majority of working working Joes have to do. You know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of, she starts by, she's got a valid point, 
And then at the end of that monologue, she's got a... Uh, it's a self-interest that comes out, isn't it? So she's quite a complex character. I don't think you can say this is a simply misogynistic... And I wish we had a, a female colleague <laughs> to sort of argue against this. But I don't yeah. think... I'd, 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 we really need it, because, you know, there's three blokes talking about, you know, representation of women in films. And I'm cognizant of that. But I don't think it's a simply misogynistic portrayal. I think it's quite three-dimensional. You know, she's got a, a legitimate point, but then, on the other hand... And the other thing is, it's her character breaks so many archetypes. You know, she becomes increasingly Machiavellian. And, and there's that point where she gives birth to, to um, her and Hank's daughter, and in the hospital, she, she plots to frame Lou while she's actually nursing a newborn baby. She sort of says, well, you, you've got to get Jacob to fix mm. to get Jacob to yeah. frame yeah. Lou. And she's actually nursing the newborn daughter at the time. And, and then also, uh, Jacob, bless his heart, I mean, he's mm. the character that I feel sorry for. He, he gives his child a teddy bear to, to, to the child, doesn't he? And, and uh, she, she says, it's um, used. You know, and I can't say that with the the impact that it needs, but but she's really repulsed by the fact that she used teddy bear, and, and Hank says, "Well, it was Jacob's, you know, childhood teddy bear," and and, and there's been that setup where Jacob sort of explains to Hank, you know, this is a, this is such a sort of a heartfelt present, and it obviously means such a, uh, so much to him. Um, I mean, in terms of sort of Fonda's performance, of course, she'd worked with Baby before as as Linda. And Ash's girlfriend in the wraparound scenes in, in Army of Darkness. And and Fonda apparently was a, a huge fan of, of Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. Um, she was up for the role of Sheila at one point, or she was considered for the role of Sheila in that film. But the part had already been given to M. Beth David, who uh, a year or two after went on to sort of more significant things with them. I say that in air quotes, with uh, Schindler's List, of course. Um, but Fonda... I'd also reputedly auditioned for the role, and I didn't know this until, until reading, you know, researching about, about the production of this, but she'd also auditioned for the role in Dartman that went to Frances McDormand, who, of course, was the, the wife of Joel Cohen and the star of, of Fargo. Um, I mean, Sarah, the role of Sarah, she's a librarian, she's pregnant, you know, she everything that you could sort of say represents a, a stereotypical nature in female character role in films. She embodies, doesn't she? There's, there are parallels, I think, with, with Marge, the pregnant Marge in Fargo, of course. Uh, but it, in this film, Sarah's a, a destructive force. She sort of sows those seeds of distrust from very early in the story. And I think there's a lot of very similitude, a lot of um, sort of realism in those conversations that Sarah has with Hank. Not pillow talk, but, you know, talk in the home about, uh, about uh, well, don't you think that uh, you should do a bit more about Lou or about Jacob, and you know, to put them in the place of to make sure that they are um, aware of their mm. position in, in this, this simple plant, air quotes. Um, but, as you thought, you know, it's her whisperings that lead to yeah. so many of the violent deaths, which is the, the, the Lady Macbeth comparison. And the well, let me from... Sorry, Pete. No, sorry, sorry. Uh, you, you, you carry on. No, no, no. You were going to say something. Well, so it, it was just, I, I thought, you know, she's so, um, you know, you know, she's got that that unhanded sort of role throughout. It so much so that by by the time you get to the end, and she's called to say that the uh, FBI agent isn't a real FBI agent. Um, at that point, I I was thinking that she might even be lying, and that he is a real FBI agent, and she's just trying to get Hank to 
to kill him just to get rid of him so she can have the money sort of thing you know her character's changed so much that you could believe that sort of manipulation of her own husband um by her yeah i think i think like i think that's credit to scott smith and sam Raimi that they both handle things in such a way that at that point when gary cole enters you think well is he a, is he an fbi agent or is she just is she just going to leave? Because you know at that point she's led to the death of Dwight. Mm. Um, she's kind of led to Lou's death, in a way, by poisoning Hank against Lou and Jacob. Um, so you think, well, is, is she going to lead him into into murdering uh, an agent of the FBI? Mm. Uh, and of course, spoilers, Gary Cole is is not an agent of the FBI. He's a, he's a gangster. Um, mm. But, and, and there's that Albert, she says to... Um, Hank, well, you must, you've got to, have you seen his badge? Mm. And Hank says to Carl, the sheriff, he says, have you seen his badge? And Carl says, well, you know, he's an FBI agent. He sort of dismisses it, doesn't he? Mm. But, of course, the, the revelation is that Gary Carl's character is not an FBI mm. agent. And, uh, and uh, I mean, that's that's the thing at the end, and this is kind of huge spoilers, of course, but, uh, but when Jacob sees that um, Hank's killed, Gary Cowell's character, Agent Baxter, isn't it? I think he masquerades as. Um, you never find out his real name. But um, when, when Jacob sees that, that's when Jacob sort of he he, he wants he wants to leave this earth, doesn't he? Because mm. his brother's capable of so many moments of horrendous violence. And I don't think Jacob ever finds out. I think Hank says, "Well, he, he wasn't an he was a gangster." But Jacob doesn't believe that because he's kind of at that point he knows what's going on because he's quite. Although, despite his outward appearances, which are emphasised through Thornton's kind of those those glasses that he wears, which are broken mm. at one point and are taped up, and that those false teeth that he wears with that overbite, and he he plays that country bumpkin character very well, uh, despite his appearance, is a very good character. Well, he's the most well, he, character. Yeah, he says early on, doesn't he, that he 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 observes things. There's a, a quote somewhere, um, mm. and again, I mean, it's like. It's like when he when he talks about the the how his father really died. Again, it's a sort of sense of he wasn't told by anyone. He just sort of well, that it's obvious, isn't it? That's you know he he observed the truth of it. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's 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 also as well. Um, you know what happens to Jacob is um, you know foreshadowed by again that that speech from you know Fonda sort of thing when she's going on at Hank about what what to, what she wants in life, and she rounds it off with. Um, I've got the quote here sort of thing saying um, I haven't done because he's telling her to shut up. Basically, don't want to hear about how, you know, what have I the life? And she goes, I haven't done Jacob yet. It's back to the welfare office for Jacob, the occasional odd job. But with Lou gone now, just himself and his dog all alone in that filthy apartment. How long do you give him, Hank? Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think, you know, that that's obviously clearly what's going through Jacob's mind. Uh, you know, that everything else and everything that's gone on and everything that's happening. um, and I love the way she rounds up as well. She says, sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Everything like it used to be. And it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's yeah. such a harsh speech. And I think that's foreshadowing sort of thing, what what happens to Jacob at the end quite quite clearly. So Because she knows, and I think Jacob knows, and anyone who doesn't know or doesn't want to face up to what's going on is, you know, it's, it's Hank. Um, but, yeah, the, the supposedly educated, smart one. And he's, he's, he's always, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah he's, he's a step behind everything. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Jacob shows those hidden depths near the start. I mean, at the start of the film, when Jacob and Lou rock up at Hank's house in Jacob's truck, 
it, it sort of establishes Jacob as a foil to Hank, doesn't it? As a sort mm. of, almost a comic sort of sidekick. Yeah, because there's a sequence out... where they're, they're peeing in the snow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then they go out to the, the, the parents' grave and, and Jacob shows mm. his depth. Yeah. And, and, and there's flowers on the parents' grave. And I yeah. think sort of realises that somebody's been there before, previously. And of course, it's Jacob. And Jacob. Yeah, I think I think that was the hint of the split from the start, wasn't it? That, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, he says, "What do you think, Hank?" And it's great. I, I mean, the lines delivered beautifully by Thornton. Uh, but he says, "What do you think, Hank? This is the only day we can come." What's wrong with you? He says, doesn't he? He's mm-hmm. quite sort of uh, vehement about this, and, and uh, you know, like I say, he's, he's quite a sensitive character. Um, giving the teddy bear to his child, a teddy, teddy bear to his niece. His newborn niece is, is, is such a generous gesture, but mm. um, Sarah doesn't acknowledge it. Hank's not really sort of, he sort of gets it, but he doesn't get it. And, and uh, you know, and, and when when Hank made his drive, Jacob is the one that says they should turn themselves up, turn themselves in. You know, he's the one with the conscience, conscience isn't he? Of course. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I put at one point that uh, Jacob is like a, a loyal dog, but he doesn't know who its owner is. You know, he's he sort of he's loyal to whoever's around, but also a sense of morality and the law and and all these sort of things. He desperately wants to be. Well, right, I thought he was. I thought he was. He was loyal to the family, his family, his dad, and also the place. He wants things. You know, you know, he wants to continue the sort of the family. Whereas I think Hank is a sort of break from you know the farming tradition. He's obviously educated. Mm. Wants to get away and. I mean, it's it's quite interesting in the, in the start sort of thing because Hank is the one who says we shouldn't do this. It's like so he does show some education sort of thing. There's like a, a nuance sort of that, that, that he figures that no good can come of this. Mm. No good can come of keeping this money. But the other two go, no, 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 be all right. Yeah. Um, and then and he's immediately uh, convinced though, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't take much convincing sort of thing. But you know, there is a there is a part of him sort of thing that doesn't you know know sort of thing. You can see it like this shouldn't be it. The quote, you know, you don't. You don't steal the American dream; you work for it, um, yeah. and I think that's quite apt there, sort of thing. But then it's it's you know Jacob wants it because he wants he simply just wants to get the you know the old house back. He just wants his you know he wants to renovate and and, and you know be like his dad, get the farm up and running again, um, and, and that's it. And, and Hank wants wants none of that. He wants to. It's Hank's idea that once we have the money, we all just move away. Mm. Well, um, yeah, and so yeah. and so his his you know. You know his 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 affinity has obviously been you know whether he went away to university or wherever I'm not I'm not quite sure I think he did, um, and so yeah. his his affinity with the location the town is is much less you know he works in the feed store and but I think you know he probably you know whatever sort of thing and I think he's you can sense his frustration in that sequence where he has to explain to somebody that there are five Mondays in a month mm. um, you know mm. and, and you get that you know he doesn't you know small town life he wants a bit more. And so his idea is, well, we just move away. That's great. Mm. We get away from here. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Jacob is like Jacob and Lou are like, well, you know, what do you mean? Where do we go? What do I do? My life is here. Yeah. I mean, it's that- a great moment. You've got these two brothers that are separated by education and economics. And of course, Hank's education was paid for by the father who overmortgaged the farm, which yeah. led to being foreclosed and led to a suicide. But there's this nature and nurture debate, isn't there, of course, um, in those two brothers. And all Jacob wants is to buy back and fix mm. up the family farm. That that becomes a symbol of belonging, doesn't it? And he says at one point, I'm supposed to get the farm, he says to his brother. Mm. It's distraught at the time. He says, what do I get? He says, you know, uh, this is what I want. This is where I want to be. This mm. is my home. This is my home, Hank. 
and and um, you know there's, there's there's so many depths I think to to um, Thornton's performance. Mm. Um, I mean Thornton at the time was no stranger to neo noir. He, he'd obviously co-written written or co-written Cal Franklin's One False Move, which I mentioned earlier, um, which is a superb film. He'd acted in in uh, Trouble Trouble Bound, which is a bit of a neglected picture, but it's still a, a decent neo noir. Oliver Stone's U-turn, of course, about the same time as A Simple Plan. Uh, the Cowans, the man who wasn't there. This was his first collaboration with with Raimi, um, and he went on to to write or co-write the script for uh, The Gift, Raimi's supernatural film, um, and that was based on Thornton's mother's own experiences as a as a psychic, apparently. Um, with A Simple Plan, that was the the film in which uh, uh, Thornton had collaborated with, with Paxton first. Um, uh, they, they, they were cast together. Um, and, um, in his autobiography, the the Billy Bob Billy Bob tape, sorry, written by uh, or co-written by Kinky Friedman, who himself written some um, sort of noirish um, crime novels, PI novels of the eighties um, and nineties. Thornton cited his role as Jacob as one of the two screen roles that he never, in, in, in this words, the quote, he never wanted to stop playing. Where when the movie was over, I wanted to stay in character. The other of these roles was his role in, in the Coen's The Man Who Wasn't There. And Thornton says that if you put those two characters together, he says, quote, it's pretty much who I am, who I am in real life. Um, and, and the character in the book, apparently, like I say, I've not read the book uh, by Scott Smith, but the character in the book is a, is a fat guy. I can say that, fat guy myself. Um, but uh, <laughs> there's no discriminatory sort of language there. Um, Thornton apparently, however, lost weight for the role. And, and he actually ended up because he would only eat a can of tuna and a, and a package of Twizzlers, which were apparently the licorice sweets in America, um, each day. Um, he actually lost so much weight that he, he ended up in the hospital. Um, but it paid off for him. He was he was given or was nominated for the 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 Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor at the time. Um, the other thing about Thornton is that he introduced Mavis to Brent Briscoe, who plays Lou. Um, and, and, and Thornton had directed Briscoe in, in Sling Blade, uh, which you might have seen, um, really good film, which was based on Thornton's play. Some folks call it a Sling Blade, um, quite a big big thing in, in the 90s. Um, I think in terms of Paxton, though, um, I don't know what any of you think about Paxton's performance as, as Hank. Well, I think it was really interesting at the beginning, and it, and it, it mirrors a lot of what Ad was saying, where where they're at the crash site, and you've got the you've got um, uh, his brother and 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 Lou, Jacob and Lou, and they're 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 dressed as if they belong there. They you know they're part of the town, they're part of where they live. You know they've got their hats and the gloves on and everything, and um, and Hank is there in his sort of more sort of fancy sort of coat a, a pretty um uh impractical sort of thing and and um he, and he's always he's always back you know he's, he's he's always at the back of the queue whilst they're going through the woods sort of chasing the fox and uh he, he's not drinking and stuff like that you know he's very much removed um and i sort of again sort of bleeding into what you talk about before where he 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 literally becomes unravelled straight away. He 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 presents himself as you know, the moral thing of oh we shouldn't do this, but he comes out of the 
the plane and and i think as they're talking about that whether they should do it or not you notice that he's i mean it's probably going into things that too much detail that people do but you notice that his his fancy city clothes his coat is ripped you know he's, he's yeah. literally being becoming on un, un, unraveled um yeah and there was a there was another thing um uh, 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 oh the, when during the uh, the argument with Lou, how they're saying um, uh, Lou and Jacob need the money and Hank just yeah. wants it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Lou says, isn't it? Um, he says, uh, "Yeah, we, we we need this." You know, Hank, mm. Hank, Hank just wants it. And um, and Hank, of course, his ear is bent by his wife, um, so it's sort of Hank and Sarah want it really even though they've got a comfortable lifestyle. And uh, yeah, I think that says a lot. I mean, for my money, sorry, Adi, I, I sort of let you sort of speak about that. No, 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 go, go, go. But I think um, pa- Paxton's very good as, as every man, Hank. And I think in Mamie's direction, you can, you can sort of see um, uh, Bruce Campbell playing this role, I think, in, in an alternate universe. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but Paxton is great. I mean, he's, he's rock steady at first. But that understanding, as we said about that, that open innovation, is understanding of the world is, is gradually undermined as the story goes on by the revelations, particularly from Jacob, you know, about the, the, the father's suicide and, uh, you know, how the, uh, their dad overmortgaged the farm to pay for Hank's education. Uh, and he's revealed to be gullible. That's why he's so easily led by, by Sarah, I think, like, like Macbeth, as we said, in, in Shakespeare's play. The other thing about Hank, and I sort of mentioned nature and nature earlier, is the gradual revelation. You know, Jacob shies away from violence, but but there's the gradual revelation of Hank's propensity for, for violence. Um, you know, uh, he when he, he he suffocates Dwight, which is such an unpleasant, um, intimate way to to murder somebody. He he sort of covers his mouth and holds his nose, um, and and. Uh, like I say, he looks around. It's not, it's, it, you know, it's not a sense of, there's no sense of guilt. There's a sense of, am I going to get caught for this? Is, is somebody watching? And mm. Sarah said at one point to Hank, he must remember, quote, how other people see you. You're just a normal guy. Nobody believed that you'd be capable of doing what you're doing. And she's almost giving him praise for these kind of abhorrent aspects of his character. Later in the film, as I said, Gary Cole's FBI agent tells excuse me, fake FBI agent, I should say, tell Hank, guess you're not the cold-blooded type, are you? Mm. He's unaware, of course, of what Hank's done at that point in the story, which is to, to murder Dwight and then to facilitate in the, the executions of Lou and his wife. Um, uh, you know, so that utterly unnecessary scene, you know, where, where um, Jacob um, uh, uh, sort of helps him set a trap for Lou, so he can record Lou's alleged confession to the murder of Dwight, um, uh, and it's uh, that's quite a cleverly handled thing because at some points when when Jacob starts mocking Hank, mm. Hank looks astonished, as if to say, yeah. "Well, you're my brother. You stop me saying these horrendous things about me." He's mocking him, but uh, of course we we realise as the se- sequence ends that Jacob has been actually playing part. Uh, playing his role in Hank's entrapment of Lou, but then maybe also in the subtext ex- expressing his own um, 
uh, what's the word, um, his own uh, sense of antagonism towards his brother, who's been so much more privileged than, than, than he has, perhaps. Um, so there's, I think there's so many depths, I think, to that, that relationship between Hank and, 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 and Thornton, uh, between Hank and Jacob, between uh, Paxton and Thornton. Um, mm. And it, it comes out, I think, particularly in that, that scene where Jacob and Hank sit in the car and they discuss Jacob's life and how lonely Jacob is. Jacob mm. talks about his girlfriend as a teenager. And Hank said, well, you know, remember that, 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 that beautiful girl you used to go out with when you were sort of at, at school? And Jacob reveals that she only done it, dated him for a month in order to win a bet. I think it was $100, wasn't it? Mm. And, uh, yeah. There's this profound sense of Jacob's loneliness there. You know, something yeah. blinking at He's got no understand. He doesn't understand that at all. He can't. He can't. It looks astonished, as if, as, if, as if to say, "How can you be so sort of lonely?" And Jacob says, "You know, I never even, I never even kissed a girl before. Mm. If being rich changes that, I'm all for it. I just want to feel what other people do, whether or not it's because of the, yeah. uh, whether whether or not it's because of the money." He says, um, and I think that 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 that's such a well played scene between those two actors. And you get that. You know how the, how to play off against each other. Sorry, Pete. Mm. Can no, no. I was just uh, I just agreeing so much with what you're saying. And he he sort of says that afterwards that she would occasionally sort of smile a hello to him in the corridor or something. And you know it was so wonderful. You know she didn't have to do that. You know she was his sort of sense of yeah, it's great, isn't it? yeah, 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 gratitude. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, despite the differences, there's, there's that scene as well where Hank tells Jacob, and I think it's in the hospital, isn't it, after Hank's daughter's been bought, he says, you, you've got to pick a side. And, 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 you know, either Hank or Lou. And there's, Jacob is dumbstruck by this, and he stares at Hank, he says, good, and it's great. The delivery of it by Thornton is, I mean, I can't sort of emulate it. He says, good, good, man, I pick you, you're, you're my brother. As if there's no question about it. And, and, and we cut, or maybe cuts to that close-up of Hank. And, and you think as the audience, well, would Hank pick Jacob with such ease and dedication? It, it, you know, if he was placed in those in that moment. And I mean, you, you get the sense that he wouldn't, of course. Well, I'm, I'm not um, so sure sort of thing, because I think that, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if you, there's certain things that Hank does like, um, I mean, I mean, he, it's a strange sort of almost contradictory sort of thing because you you know you do get the sense of that he would do things for his brother. I mean he he kills the farmer, you know after after Thornton's you know instinctive you know instinctively smacks him over the back of the head uh, with a tire iron, um, you know um, <laughs> when they think is that is that, is uh, that Hank's own sense of self-preservation? Well, it's it's hard to say, isn't it, sort of thing because I mean he covers it up. Um, and and you know and then he tells him you know he wants dead and I've taken you know, it because it, it I guess sort of thing because I mean because the conversation afterwards when Jacob says we have to tell and he's mm. like no you can't because he wasn't dead um, you know I, I guess actually thinking about it sort of thing that yeah maybe Paxton would never have told him and left him to left him to feel that guilt of killing him um, yeah uh, maybe that's because when when you state, and I did notice the other, actually thinking about it, yeah, there's the point where he looks away anyway, when he's strangling him sort of thing, or he's smothering him. And he's, yeah. I don't think he's looking for police or anything. I think he's looking for Jacob. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's it's, looking to see if, is, he, is, is, he, is he being watched? Can I get away with this? Will anyone ever know? And then he's, you know, his, his instinct is, no, I'm not going to say anything about this and let Jacob stew in that. And it's only when Jacob flares up saying, um, so yeah, actually thinking about it, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> 
I think I, I sort of saw that scene sort of slightly differently at the time, but thinking back on it, um, there is that sense of self-preservation that, that Hank has, uh, which is puts above everything else. And I think that's echoed at the end as well, isn't it? When you know, he takes what actions he does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you know, from the outset, you get the sense that, that Hank's seen as an outsider, don't you? As, 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 as Pete said, that's kind of represented to the costumes particularly, but uh, yeah. But also, I mean, they quite clearly see him as, as haughty, if you like, or as, as sort of educated to the point where he, he sees himself looking down upon the others. Um, I mean, Lou says to Hank at one point, sometimes you can come across like someone who's got a got a stick up their ass. He mm. says, doesn't he? Mm. And, uh, and 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 kind of everything that that Hank does kind of proves that true in a way because he 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 sort of he sets up that plot against Lou. Um, you know, he tells you there's not to speak about the the, the money, but then he goes home and, 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 and you know, he's a hypocrite. He, t- he tells mm. him. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. About it. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of complexity, I think, in that, that relationship between, between Hank and Jacob. Um, I mean, what about the neo-noir conventions in the picture? Uh, does anybody have any sort of reflections on, you know, the, the relationship in think- the film with Hank? Yeah, yeah cause I, I think a lot of a, a lot of the newer um, convention stuff, um, I can I can find well it find um, frustrating, but in, in the same way that's because the film's got under your skin. You know, when when you can see things unraveling and you can see people making things overly complex, and and if they just left things as they were, it would have been fine. Like um, you mentioned it before, the um, oh, you and McGregor film, Shallow Grave. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just so annoying because you just think, oh, for God's sake, just, just it'll be all right if you just stop. Be patient, just get. <laughs> um, but I, I think, and 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 I think I remember this time and the first time I watched it because obviously I forgot all about it for the second time I watched it. But I, I remember thinking at the start, thinking, oh God, it's going to be one of them. It's going to be so annoying because it's going to be so unnecessarily convoluted and and it, you know frustrating and you can shout at the screen but i don't i don't think you had that because i think um all the moves and all the sort of um sidesteps and things were were set up really well with the wife and 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 with with everyone else i think you know it was it was less making it complicated for the sake of it which i think some noir can do neo noir can sort of do that it's yeah. just like oh to fit the convention we have to make these twists and turns but whereas yeah. with a simple plan it it comes through the people much more uh, i think so it, yeah yeah it feels it feels naturalistic that the steps the things the events that happen um are born out of not desires to be you know what is it some people do some good people do evil things there's a tagline one of the yeah, taglines yeah. you know and i think that's that's you know, evil is a you know subjective thing, but you don't. It's not necessarily evil. It's just like you're driven to this desire to be something else, something more, and it yeah. it does grow from you know you know every every step along this sort of thing isn't isn't a. I, I agree with you, Pete. Sort of thing that neo noir can sometimes twist itself in knots, trying to be oh, who did this to what and oh that double cross and this double cross. And I don't think anything's about you know it's not about that. It's a it's just trying to sort of extricate themselves out of this mess. And even the sequence yeah. with. Um, you know when when they try and frame Lou hmm. is 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 built on Lou turning up at his house and saying, "Well, I know about this sort of thing." So it's it's a reactionary thing, sort of thing, and, and everything feels, you know, doesn't feel sort of forced. It feels, oh God, we've got we're now going to deal with this situation. How do we deal with it? Yeah. And, and I mean, Lou, Lou, 
it's probably Lou coming round and saying that is probably the most overt plot yeah twist sort of thing that's yeah i think so because that that was the one thing that um it's kind of believable for the character but d- doesn't he say sort of thing i owe people money mm. um yeah. you know i need some money because i owe people money and that to to me that felt the only bit in this in the film sort of thing which felt you know a sort of an allusion to that kind of typical plot beat um, where oh no one of them owes some money so they need it sort of thing I owe money to people blah blah and uh, rather than it just being I just actually want some of the cash so I can go buy a new car um, well, that's which a, which which reminded me of um, the sequence in uh, Goodfellas yeah um, you know where they do the robbery and then they tell everyone don't whatever you do don't buy anything or don't Superman. do anything to bring heat yeah don't do anything to bring heat down upon us or Superman three yeah, yeah. Um, you know and then the, the wives turn up in ma- not in Superman three but in Goodfellas they turn it the wives turn up in massive fur coats and all this stuff and yeah. you know so De, De Niro is like what the what the, what are you doing um, yeah. take this back and he's like oh all that that that's you know it, it's it, you know that you know to this point something sort of Hank knows that we can't bring attention to ourselves sort of thing and he doesn't trust Lou in that respect but the whole you know, oh, I owe money to people. Felt like a, a a bit of a contrivance. I don't know. That was probably the only thing in the entire film that did to me. And then he, he yeah. gives him he gives him forty dollars, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's I great. Think, I He's think like, for this? I think for me though, the the, the gambling thing echoed the, the thing that was running throughout. You know, that idea of a simple plan. You know, to be happy. What 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 are people's different simple plans? And and in a way, they're all engaged in simple plans in the in the start you know before the movie they've all got a simple plan of of happiness your job wife things like that but um but i get Lou's simple plan for happiness is oh, i'll just win some money you know you can see how yeah. that fits with with the theme and, and and how lou just wants to be happy and and some people's simple way of getting happy is to gamble and and yeah. that's how it yeah. and that's how and that's what complicates his life you know yeah it just felt like something. Yeah. Go on, sorry, Paul. So I was just going to say, you know, the, the milieu, is, if you like, is one of foreclosures. It's one of unemployment, and you can sort of see why somebody like Lou might think that, you know, uh, that, that out of desperation, they look to gambling as a way of, of sort of, you know, acquiring the money that they need to elevate themselves out of the position that they're in. You know, that's quite a, sort of a realistic conceit, I think. Sorry, Adrian, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I get, I get, I understand that sort of thing. I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not having, you know, a pop, uh, the film for sort of portraying somebody who's into gambling and things like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm thinking is that the the contrivance of these two things happening together. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, oh, he needs some money. Oh, and isn't it a good look? We just found this $4.4 yeah. $4 million. That's, that's the bit I mean, where it's like, it felt like a, a step. You, I, I, I would have believed Lou just wanting, you know, he just said, just give me one of the bills sort of thing, just to have some money. Um, yeah. It felt like justification enough um, yeah. for his character. If, do, 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 do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's the, and I just felt that the the layering on top of, oh, I owe people money. And maybe he was making that up. I don't know. You know, maybe his character is just using it as an excuse because that's what people do. But um, it just felt like a, a, a layer on top that was kind of a little bit unnecessary. Um, that's yeah. what that's. Yeah. Um, I think. Sorry, I, th- I think the, the the one other bit, the one other bit that that fits into that noir sort of complicated thing was was with um, Bridget Fonda, the the wife, saying to take some money back 
to the to the plane. You know that that that's a I think that's a, a plot point that that puts you on that road to thinking oh there's just going to be complications on top of complications yeah. they're all going to bite each other in the back sort of thing but I think those are the only two bits that, that sort of come out like that yeah I mean in terms of the neo-noir context if you like there's, there's, there's this juxtaposition between sort of scorched heat of, of films like um, the film Soleil's like uh, we talked about after, after that my sweet last time and delusion and of a stone's U-turn. But here we've got this kind of Midwestern noir, the Fargo S, the snow-covered landscapes, which is a very sharp sort of tonal juxtaposition, I think, visually. Um, you know, the setting here is 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 that the harsh climate forecloses small-town life and what that adds to the pictures. Um, obviously, as we said, the similarities are with Fargo. Um, and I think it's perhaps best to consider maybe the Coen's films as sort of existing in the same universe because they overlap at certain points, like Francis McDormand's appearance in both, or the Coen uh, Coen brothers, who wrote Crime Wave, of course, for for Raimi. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's more similarities personally between this and and, and the Coen's debut, Blood Simple, than there is with Fargo, because, you know, that sequence in in Blood Blood Simple, the, the sequence that anchors the film, where Ray takes Marty, who believes to be dead, uh, to bury him in a in a shallow grave, but but Marty awakens and, and Ray murders him, and, and we've got exactly the same sort of not the same sequence, but the same premise in the murder of Dwight in 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 a simple plan, I think you know when when Hanks transported him on the snowmobile after he believes him to be killed by by Jacob unintentionally, but but Dwight awakens and, and Hanks suffocates him. So you know the, the, I think the parallels, the greater parallels, were blood simple than, than with Fargo, perhaps. But the, in terms of the setting, of course, the you know the mid midwestern sort of uh, snow-covered landscape, the more outward parallels with um, with Fargo. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, is there anything else people want to say about the the themes, or, or or you know, in terms of sort of conclusive uh, comments about it? No, I think we've in amongst all that, I think we've covered quite <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only thing that I wanted to mention really is, is sort of this, like I say, this nature and nature. I'll come back to that. Uh, you know, the, Hank's cold bloodiness. Uh, you know, is, is the notion of evil essential? Because Jacob doesn't have it in him, does he? You know, you think if it was nature, there would both of these characters would be equally uh, uh, disposable to violence. Uh, but, mm. but 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 Jacob Jacob seems reticent to. Um, he do, he shoots Lou to protect his brother. But I don't think he would murder Dwight in in the cold blooded way that that Hank does. Um, also, you know the, the the parallels that I've noted here with um, with Steinbeck and um, of mice and men particularly, and, and sort of Hank and Jacob's relationship mirrors that of George and, and Lenny in the book. Um, yeah, in, I was I was going to mention that. I, I thought that yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean in the Steinbeck novella, George is aware that Lenny's not strong, quotes enough for the depressionary context, and Jacob's the same. You know, this era of foreclosures, poverty, and when, especially when Hank realizes how lonely and isolated Jacob's been, that he's kind of too innocent and trusting in a way. And 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 and, and there's that great line where Jacob says to Hank, "Hank, do you ever feel evil?" He says, "I do. I feel evil." Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, for me, the film's about Jake. It's really about Jacob. Um, you know, it's, it's the movement from Jacob's levity when we first see him introduced 
you know, he's, he's sort of a bit drunk, he's a bit playful. Added to an awareness of the cruelty of human existence, as enacted by his brother, Hank. And the final act is, is his final act, if you like, in the film, is, is self-annihilating. It's utterly nihilistic, I think. It leaves the viewer with a profound sense of loss, sadness and grief. And there's that line that um, I think Lou delivers it, the American dream in a gym bag. In a gym bag. And, you know, the American dream in a gym bag, indeed. I think the irony is, is ultimately, the end of the film, the money's worthless. And I don't think it would be a, a noir if it wasn't. If the money had any value, um, it wouldn't be a noir. But fi- the final sort of image, not the final image of the film, but the final image you're left mm. with is, is Hank burning that money. And Sarah, how distraught she is. Mm. Mm. Hank yeah. burning this money. You know, how appalled she is. Mm. And that's almost worthless. You know, every, is it every tenth bill's marked? Yeah. But every tenth bill, the number's been recorded. So you can't spend it. You know, you don't know which... Which is a tenth bill that, that that that's going to get flagged up in the FBI database or whatever. But she says you can't burn, you can't burn this hand. You know, she says, well, it's useless. I think yeah, I mean it it is sort of thing, and I think that that ending, um, you know, in every way sort of thing lays heavy on the viewer, should we say? Um, you know, it's it's not, the, the, you know, like we said at the beginning, sort of thing. Bad things happen in these films. Um, and everything just, as you pointed out, Pete, sort of thing, just everything just unravels, spirals outwards through people trying to do simple, simple choices that, you know, mount up, um, you know, consequence upon consequence. Um, and I think that's that's very much, you know, writ large in that end, end sequence sort of thing. And it's, and it's just the way that the uh, the FBI guy just uh, just just tells him that we marked every tenth yeah. bill. Um, I, I almost got the impression sort of thing that um, there was a there was a part of me that was wondering whether that was true. Yeah, yeah. Or whether they um, just wanted to yeah, sort of whether they, whether they suspected him and they didn't trust him sort of thing, but they didn't have anything on him sort of thing. So they're just going to plant that seed of doubt in there, uh, which the film is you know does a lot of sort of thing. There's just a, like Bridget Fonda does, and Hank's very very susceptible to that seed of doubt being planted and then which, acting acting immediately upon it. Yeah, well, there's there's that great thing, isn't there, where at the end the the real FBI are questioning him, but the the first thing we see is is Hank being questioned about you know this is how you could tell people are lying and stuff like that. and and you think oh my god they've got him they've figured him out but the 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 questioning leads to them going so the person you was talking to did you notice any of that you know because yeah. he was obviously lying it's that that great sort of moment yeah it's it's well it's yeah. a well structured ending sort of thing but you you know. Um, from the way it's shot and Hank's face and everything, and it's, mm. it's good sort of thing. But I, I was under the impression sort of thing that 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 bit about the money, quite possibly, may not have been true. Um, yeah, yeah. But like like a lot of what Bridget Fonda whispers into his ear about, oh, Lou will do this and this and this, and he's very, you know, uh, he's kind of lived his life with a sense of I've got I've got to do what other people think is the right thing. I always got the impression that he yeah. went away to university because that was what was expected of him. Yeah, um, and things like that, and so he's not—he's not a particularly strong character. And I think that scene as well, when you know, he, you know, he's come back from university and he's working in a, a feed mm. store for some 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 guy who just sits on the phone all the time. Um, yeah. And like the way he asks, "Oh, can I can I can I leave early today?" And it's like, you know, he doesn't seem a particularly confident character, uh, no, even though no. he's, he's even though he's supposedly the one with all the, should we say, in quoted Matt's all the smarts. Mm. Yeah. Yeah um so yeah that that ending i think is very um is very open to interpretation of whether anything you know was was true from the fbi i don't know 
I love. Yeah. I, I really love the. I mean, you're saying about the, the the scene that six of you for the end, but I think the the bleakness of the actual ending where they're going through the motions of life, I'm totally unhappy because, you know, at the beginning that that's all presented as you know because there's there's two sort of levels of irony on it you know where you think at the beginning oh you had happiness you idiot why didn't you just stick with what you had and you know you you he walks through the town he knows everyone everyone says hello he's got respect for the law and stuff like that oh he was and then of course we realize in the middle that that was false happiness anyway because the, the wife says that you know she was never happy but then by the time we come to the end and we're seeing very similar shots of of him at work and then the the wife at the library and it and we know that they're not happy and 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 I think with the voiceover they were saying you know the best that they can hope for is is the days where they forget it never happened but those are few and far between and it's just the total grimness of even that pretense of happiness just as well um if you want to t- take it one step further, I was struck by the name Jacob as well. Um, and uh, ja- a quick bit of research. Um, Jacob was obviously a, a biblical name um, and, and was representative of uh, part of social order. And Jacob was a pastoralist um, in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and Esau was a nomadic hunter. So we could say Esau was Hank, um, yeah. the, the person who doesn't have any roots, wants to leave, wants to move away. So there's there's... If you want to go a bit deeper sort of thing, there may be some biblical reference to their use of their names um, and their brotherly yeah. sort of relationship. He was the twin brother. Jacob was the younger twin brother of Esau. I think for, for me, I'm just going to sort of get more about the film. And I think just revisiting it, like we said earlier, sort of thing was interesting because I think um, similar to what we said, Paul, this was, uh, you know, a, a, a different step for, for Raimi and what he'd made from what he'd made before, yeah. much more, you know, a much more toned down um a much more you know restrained piece of directing and, and maybe not what you were looking for at the time but i think on, upon revisit um this this really does show it show its strength as a, as a really strong um you know piece of piece of film piece of fiction um that, that so it's a really really good adaptation i mean i've not read the book um but you know i'm quite interested to read it now um and see how it compares um and i think this is a this is a really strong you know um a really strong film sort of thing that that shows Raimi sort of becoming more of a a confident you know you know confident director in his you know in in his uh, evolution I think yeah yeah away from the the horror genre yeah absolutely yeah. I mean we're cooking the dead had, had taken that step already sort of thing but it was it was a step away from that sort of you know relying on camera techniques relying on you know the, 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 that's that sort of kinetic energy that his films were sort of replete with this is much more no, no, I'm going to let the characters the mm. characters tell the story here. I mean, the, the camera work's very, very static, I thought, mostly, yeah. um, which is you know, unusual for him. But, um, yeah, coming, coming back on it sort of thing, you know, 20 years later, um, it, it, this really stands up as a, as a strong film, I think. So if you want to join us uh, next time, we're going to be talking about uh, Oliver Stone's talk radio. Um, what can we expect in that, Paul? Well, well, we'll have a discussion of, of, of Stone's uh, body of work and we'll also talk about the, the origins of the, the film in, in the play by Eric Bogosian and uh, uh, the true story of Alan Berg, the radio DJ on which the play by Bogosian was based. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, join us for that.
Look at this. It's like we found lost treasure. We're like Robin Hood. You want to keep it? Sometimes good people do evil things. Part of that is my money. Like there's two sides now. You're my brother. Bill Paxton. You gotta make this look like it was an accident. Billy Bob Thornton. What do I get? Bridget Fonda. He's gonna shoot you off. From the New York Times best-selling novel. Let's do your best! A Simple Plan. I wish somebody else had found that money.